From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. My name is Andrew Jungklaus, and I am a PhD candidate at Columbia University in the history of religion in America. So I'm working on my dissertation project right now, which is a history of nonprofit philanthropic foundations in the United States. Um, I focus on the early to mid 20th century. Yeah, so um, for the project, I'll be focusing on three foundations, um, uh, the Pew Charitable Trusts, the, Luce, the Henry Luce Foundation, and um, the Eli Lilly Endowment. So I'm in the Department of Religion, um, but I'm studying ostensibly secular foundations. Um, what's most interesting to me are the, the um, religious sensibilities that guide these secular behemoths. Before the 1920s and 30s, we have, in, when we're talking about charity or philanthropy in the United States, um, we're usually talking about smaller religious denominational bodies. And then we have this sort of dramatic shift around the 1930s, around the time of FDR's administration. Um, that's when we get the birth of these big, what we call like the secular philanthropic foundations. Um, but Usually when we have a dramatic shift like that, it requires a little bit more investigation. It's usually not so simple. Um, and so I'm interested in that transition period between a religious sensibility toward charity and philanthropy um, to the one that we're more familiar with today. So a lot of these men who I'm studying, and they're mostly men, um, they're very religiously, politically, and economically conservative. I think that that comes with the territory a lot of times when you have an enormous fortune, you don't want other people, you know, touching it. And what a lot of it comes down to is a, um, a split between whether or not you think some sort of public authority, whether or not that's state or local government um, or federal government um, or, you know, private individuals who should be in control of the nation's welfare, private or public. Um, these people obviously think that they should, that their wealth uh, entitles them to a certain degree of choice as to like where that money goes in terms of like different philanthropic ventures, um, even different, you know, state and federal programs that they think that they should be able to sort of like earmark their money toward. Um, right now I'm in the um, the Sun Oil collection um, and I'm looking at all of these letters back and forth between um, J. Howard Pugh and the Pennsylvania Chamber of Commerce and the, um, and the Federal Chamber of Commerce, if that's not the correct term. It's sort of, um, and He's saying, you know, like, I'd like to donate X thousand dollars toward X program. Um, and, of course, because he was J. Howard Pugh, he's allowed to do that in the 1920s and 30s. Um, you know, we even have a lot of really wealthy people now who sort of get to earmark where their money is put in terms of federal programs. 
Um, but the flip side to that is just flat income tax, where elected representatives get to choose where tax revenues go to. I think that that's the struggle that most of these businessmen are dealing with. I think that a lot of it is just a feeling of entitlement. You know, it's my stuff. I should get to do with it what I wish. Um, and to be fair to them, it's not, they're not saying like, I mean, a few of them are saying this, but most of them aren't saying like, you should get rid of all taxes. Most of them are just trying to get rid of a few different tax regimes, which they feel uh, target them unjustly. So, um, inheritance taxes, things, things that also start to um, interfere in their ability to hand down control of their companies. And it's difficult to draw the line between charitable and, I don't know what you would call an estate that now functions as a museum. Um, I think that a lot of the DuPont stuff is a good example. Like now we can say it's for the public good, but I think that it only, a lot of these, you know, big estate houses that you can tour, uh, I think is a little bit different just because it has all these different research resources. Yeah. But I'm looking at, you know, some of the ones that stand alone more so. They become set up as sort of like public attractions, public good things, after they become too costly for an individual family to maintain. Um, so it becomes kind of silly when you have one little old lady living in Winterthur or whatever. You know, doing this research, it's difficult to point at individual historical actors and say they're all good or they're all bad. Um, even all of these, you know charitable and philanthropic yeah. ventures <sighs> come tinged with some element of self-promotion, right. self-preservation, as almost all things are, I think. Um, it's just interesting to me to look at these specific histories because they play out on such a massive scale that actually affect all of us. So if we look at the way that philanthropy works in this country today, I mean, it's billions and billions and billions of dollars of um, non-taxable resources. Um, you know, if the federal government had access to, I don't know, 5% of that, imagine the sorts of federal projects that can be undertaken with that, that would benefit everyone. That's not to say that different philanthropic foundations don't do a lot of work in the public good, um, it's just the difference between an individual deed of trust with particular instructions for future generations to follow in uh, dividing up that money and what we hope are democratically elected representatives in the public good in a different sense. A level of accountability there that isn't always present um, in different non-profit nonprofits. Um, I don't think that one's better than the other, really. You know, there's so much red tape associated with government action that sometimes you can get a lot done when it's private money that you couldn't get done otherwise. Um, so at least I know J. Howard Pugh was really careful about keeping his the family name out of the spotlight, especially philanthropic ventures. Um, it wasn't until the 50s, I think, that the Pew Memorial Trusts started to have a more national presence. And then it wasn't until, I think, 
70s, 80s, 90s, that they really started to become what we know them as today. Um, so the Henry Luce Foundation um, was founded in the 1930s um, by Henry Luce and Claire Booth Luce. Um, Henry Luce was the founder of Time Inc. So Time Magazine, Life Magazine, Fortune, Sports Illustrated. So one of the things that I'm interested in is where the money comes from for these foundations um, and how it changes form. So for a lot of these family foundations, uh, the initial capital that got them started was stock from the family's original company. So for the Pews, it was Sun Oil stock. Um, for the Luce Foundation, it was Time Inc. stock. Um, and the Henry Luce Foundation held on to that Time Inc. stock for a really long time because it did really well. They got rid of it all in the 1990s with the AOL Time Warner merger um, because they thought that that merger would do really bad things for their stock. And it did, and so they were wise to do so. Um, but one of the things that they ended up forfeiting was um, Henry Luce's heir, I think it's Henry Luce III, was his uh, power uh, at Time Inc. Um, annual shareholders meetings. It's about that stock in the foundation. It wasn't his personally, it was being held for him by the foundation. The foundation just got rid of it. And I think that it was just the savviest financial move that they could. Um, a lot of these foundations were set up to, um, to maintain some of that family control over the original business. So it was a conscious decision for Henry Luce to deposit this stock in the foundation and say that my son gets to vote with this whenever he wants, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's up to the board to decide how long it's prudent to hold on to those common sense that wasn't good for one guy. And I think he was probably upset with it. At the broadest level, that's what's most interesting to me is the relationship between public and private in the United States. Um, what that means, uh, how that's construed and interpreted in different periods. Um, and the different corporate forms that are created to deal with that sort of fuzzy line between the two. Um, so I'm really interested in uh, for-profit and non-profit corporate structures. So that's one thing that I'm researching a lot. Legally, there's not too much that's, uh, that looks different in terms of corporate structure between like a church and a non-profit foundation. Um, but we know from looking at them from our own experiences that they're very different institutions. They do different things. They have different amounts of money. They engage with the public in different ways. Um, so the different ways in which those sets of institutions make use of, manipulate um, different corporate structures they have to operate in, um, that's really interesting to me, and figuring out a way to get at that through archival materials is a daily challenge, but one I think is kind of fun. Of the three foundations that I'm looking at, um, and I think that this is relatively representative of the uh, philanthropic foundations that, that start growing in the 1930s and 40s, um, the three founders that I'm looking at are all, I think that we could call them, religious men in different ways. Um, 
they all have relatively, what we would consider today to be a relatively conservative Protestant faith. And I think that when faith, religious belief, is such a central part of a person's life, it's difficult to separate out their business ventures and say like, oh, well, that's just like their secular professional self doing that and looking at their philanthropic ventures and saying, oh, again, you know, these are, quote, secular philanthropies, so they have their secular hat on when they're directing those. I think that that's really difficult and kind of counterproductive to do. And so I'm trying to figure out the ways in which their personal religious sensibilities um, guided at a really fundamental level. Um, you know, religion is providing answers for like what matters, you know, to people in the world. Like, you know, Henry Luce, for example, was the child of missionaries in China. Um, and he spent, I mean, the Henry Luce Foundation today, um, they devote, you know, huge sums of money to uh, different enterprises in China to aid art and things like that. Um, they also have a huge theology wing. Uh, the Pew Charitable Trust has changed a lot, I think, in um, recent decades. Uh, but I know in the beginnings, at least, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around their early institutional structure because I know that it was, you know, several different small foundations that eventually became the Pew in the mid-1950s. But at least a couple of those, um, and I know that this was at the direction of J. Howard Pew, um, helped to fund uh, Protestant seminaries and different uh, Christian magazines. So money going to those things is one pretty legibly uh, religious outcome of these four things. And then the more subtle ways, you know, how these guys are figuring out, you know, what is a worthy cause, what isn't, how should I be conducting myself in the business world and in these philanthropic ventures, stuff like that. No, I found a lot of really cool stuff and that's the overwhelming part to me is when I, you know, I'm one of the collections that I'm looking at is the J. Howard Pew papers um, in the Pew family collection. Um, and there are hundreds of boxes there, and there's no way that anyone could get through all of them. And so it's actually more overwhelming to me when I look into a box and like find something really good because it makes me think like there's probably something good in each one of these boxes, and there's no way I'm gonna be able to call them all up. Um, but I found some really cool stuff. Some, so J. Howard Pugh was active in the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, um, which is located in Philadelphia. Um, he was head of the Finance Committee for a really long time. So uh, there are some, some cool back and forth letters um, between J. Howard Pugh and different people associated with the Presbyterian church hierarchy, um, setting up a Presbyterian foundation, which had no relationship to the pew trust or anything like that, but um, it 
it's kind of interesting to imagine him sort of getting his feet wet with this sort of foundation plan and taking some of the lessons that he's learning there to refine this stuff. Um, so that's one cool thing. Um, I've just started looking into the Sun Oil collection um, and looking at J. Howard Pugh's stuff in there. Um, so far, it's mostly been Chamber of Commerce stuff. Um, so in the Sun Oil collection, um, I found these deeds of gift of Sun Oil stock from J. Howard Pugh on behalf of Sun Oil um, to a few different organizations. Um, and so that, again, it's sort of a fuzzy line between J. Howard Pugh, the guy, Sun Oil, the company, and, you know, individual or corporate philanthropic ventures through the deed of Sun Oil stock. Those are always interesting for me to find. So I'm just sort of collecting a bunch of those and seeing what I can do with them. More than individual denomination, I would say personal history and experience colors it much more. Um, so of the three that I mentioned, uh, Pew's a Presbyterian, Eli Lilly is an Episcopalian, and Luce is Presbyterian as well. Um, a lot of the time, I feel like they end up focusing resources on um, the places in which they grew up or the places in which they live. So Pew, especially in early years, and even to today, um, is a much bigger presence in Philadelphia than it is nationally. Um, I think that's starting to change, but I think that, you know, certainly the Pews gave a lot of money to Philadelphia causes, sort of on a very wide range. Um, Eli Lilly is, you know, sort of famously very Indiana focused. Uh, they have a few national campaigns, but overall it's very much focused in Indianapolis um, and across the state. Uh, Luce is probably, you know, it's funny, it, it might, of the three that I mentioned, it's probably the smallest in terms of financial endowment. But for the longest period, that might have had the largest nationally. Yeah. There are different art programs and through um, this program called the Claire Booth Luce, something in science, excuse me. It, and they fund professorships um, for women in sciences across the country. Um, but Luce has also had a big uh, presence when it comes to Asian and Chinese uh, art and politics. Um, and of course, China's where Henry Luce spent many of his early years. So that still fits in with the early life statement. I just know that Hagley is an amazing resource for uh, business history. And so I think they come across a lot of their collections just through that good reputation. So Luce isn't here. It's just Pew, but it's a lot of stuff. So it's all the Sun Oil stuff, all the Pew family personal papers, um, all the Pew Charitable Trust stuff too. So I've yet to get into the, um, the proper papers of the Pew Memorial Trusts. Um, right now I'm just looking in the personal stuff. And for most of that, um, I don't know too much about the level of engagement of J. Howard Pugh with all the different uh, funds and activities that he 
you know, directed money toward. Um, I do know that he had opinions on lots of them. Um, so people would send him a book and say, I think that you should have this published by the Presbyterian Publishing Board or whatever. Or um, we have this magazine and I think that you should give us $10,000 to help fund it into next year. Um, and he would read, you know, whatever issues of that magazine or whatever it was and have a letter sent back saying either, I think that this is a worthy cause. I'll bring this up at the next board meeting or I don't agree with this for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, so it seems at least in his personal papers that he was providing a sort of first level of defense before these sorts of requests got to the board. Um, and that helps me to understand, um, the relationship between, you know, individual and corporate action, um, and how individuals shape larger institutions, their roles in them. The more I, I sit with these things in the reading room, the more I think this whole project could be on pew and I still wouldn't be able to do it justice. Um, but that's why we have to just keep plugging away and hope that it becomes more manageable. It's, I think that there is a lot that we can learn about the nature of philanthropy in the United States today through historical projects like these. Um, and essentially that's what I'm trying to do right now with learning as much as I can about the Pew Charitable Trusts. And it's a lot of fun. Everyone in the archives has been so nice and so helpful. And, you know, doing this kind of work, you end up at a lot of different archives and you really end up depending on the charity of the people who um, you're working with, and they've been a great resource. I don't know about the National Archives, but I've spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress, and I would say, hands down, better than them. They know all the material backwards and forwards, um, and, you know, niceness really helps. <laughs> it really comes for a lot, and it makes everyone's lives easier, and I'm very grateful to them. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.